Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. I'm Nakin, and today with Pranav, our guest is Dr. Ron Klein, Chief Medical Officer at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. One of the reasons why I was excited to have Dr. Klein join us as a guest on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other is because he's both a clinician and a health policy expert. During our interview, we chatted with this double Bruin about his time at UCLA for both undergrad and med school, and he mentioned a now-defunct student organization that helped spark his interest in policymaking. We also discussed his career as a clinician and how the landscape of pediatric cancers has changed in the last 30 years. Additionally, Pranav asks about what was the inflection point that made Dr. Klein transition from purely a clinician into the world of health policy. And Dr. Klein also shares the challenges of managing health insurance for 8.2 million federal employees and how population health initiatives can be effective. And finally, in full disclosure, Dr. Ron Klein participated in this podcast in his personal capacity and not as a representative of the U.S. government. Any opinions he expressed are his his alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the U.S. government or the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Ron Klein. Hi, Dr. Klein. Thank you so much for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the talk. So because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we always like to do is ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application to UCLA. As always, we think it serves as a great introduction for our listeners. And so the prompt we've chosen for you today is, describe the most significant challenge you have faced and the steps you have taken to overcome this challenge. How has this challenge affected your academic or professional achievement? So that's a great question. I'm, I'm, you know, um, it's a pretty broad question. Probably different for me at you know my stage of life than for for high school students entering um, UCLA. Uh, I haven't had a a sort of a single one challenge where I'd say you know I overcame this. It's more of a general life theme. I, I would tell you that um, you know I grew up in a pretty stable um, nuclear family. Uh, great friends in high school, great time in, in, in uh, college and medical school. And then as you get out in the world, you realize that there are different kinds of people out there. And I'm not talking about, you know, race, ethnicity or gender. I'm talking about different personalities, you know, good people, bad people, you know, some are, are, are normal, some people have personality disorders. Um, and you have to navigate all those people in life. And so I would tell you that you know, one of the broader challenges I face that probably a lot of people in the real world, you know, once you get out of college face is that uh, dealing with all those personalities you encounter and trying to either work around them or get by them, you know, as you go through your career. I could even argue that uh, when you have a final group project due in college, uh, that those personalities do appear as well. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me um, are what's called Myers-Briggs personality testing. I don't know if, if you're familiar with it or, or listeners are familiar with it, but I've, I've been through that um, and sort of had group functions where everybody's Myers-Briggs type was known and, and that is a powerful tool. And, and they always say that it's not only good to let you know, you know what your strengths are, but it, you know, what your weaknesses are. And the whole point is 
if you have a certain weakness um, and you build a team, then you should find somebody whose strength is your weakness so that you're all, so you're all rounded out together so that you sort of have, have nobody has the same weakness. Uh, you know, one of the weaknesses I have is I'm, I'm more of a big picture thinker and, and less of a detail thinker. Um, and so if I were to put together a group, a team, I would know that I'd need, you know, good detail people around me to be successful. Um, so kind of two points there, I guess. Did you feel that after doing the assessment, uh, your teams were more effective? Did you kind of look back and see, do an A-B test maybe? Yeah, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if, if we've, in my, in my, you know, work life, we've been that structured or that, that um, definitive in terms of planning things out. I think just what, when you work in a team, you know that there are certain people are good at certain things and other people are good at other things. And, and I think that's part of one of the things about being in a team is you, you have to you know, learn to, to respect and value each other for your strengths, uh, knowing that people have strengths, have some strengths that you don't have. I think knock and post this podcast. I think I'm going to send you a Myers-Briggs assessment because we definitely didn't do that uh, last year. Who knows? Maybe that'll help us improve our teamwork. So it may very well. (laughs) All right. So we want to take it back to your time at UCLA in undergrad. So you studied biology. Mm -hmm. When and where did you develop that interest? Oh, probably 10th grade biology class in high school. You know, I, I think I think at some point, and I don't know if everybody's the same as I am, but you sort of decide if you're a science person or a non-science person. And then if you decide you're, you know, South Campus, North Campus, if that still is a true a true dividing line. Um, and uh, and then you sort of decide what you're going to do, in my case, the science. And I really enjoyed biology uh, and really enjoyed working with people. And, and uh particularly enjoyed working with children, which is how I, you know, want to, you know, becoming a pediatrician. So biology itself is, is kind of a broad subject. Um, why the, the general major UCLA kind of has the, the unique circumstance of having, you know, I want to say six or seven different specific biology related majors last I checked. Yeah. Well, back in the day, so I graduated in 1981, there was one biology major. Uh, I think there was biochemistry as well, but there was, it was biology or, or, or nothing else. And so I was a biology major. So I, I, think, I think probably the same classes were available then that are available now to, to some degree. It's just that um, within the biology major, you know, the biology major subsumed all of those different classes. So I, I managed to get through and be a biology major and never take a botany class in my life. So I can't pick out flowers and trees. Um, but, you know, molecular biology and all those, all those other things I did. And clearly the world of of 2020 in terms of molecular biology and genetics is very different than the world of, of uh, you, know, you know, late 70s and early 80s. I mean, people were just still figuring out molecular biology. Um, monoclonal antibodies were a brand new thing. Um, so all, all of that all that stuff was, was brand new back then or not, not even existed. Yeah, so I assume at UCLA, you didn't just study biology, you were involved in kind of other extracurricular activities. Uh, what were some of those activities? Yeah, the extracurricular activities were, you know, the best part of, um, of being at UCLA, and, and um, I, you know, enjoyed all of them. Uh, as, as we've discussed, you know, my major undertaking as, as an extracurricular activity was in student government at UCLA, um, and uh, I was in an entity called, I worked for part of the Undergraduate Student Association President's uh, staff called Metro Lobby. Um, I don't know if Metro Lobby still exists. Um, it was basically... The, there were sort of three lobby lobby groups within within the 
president's office. There was a local lobby that dealt with uh, city and county issues and that was Metro lobby. And then there was the, the UC students lobby. And then there was the national USSA um, uh, lobby. And so I worked in the local lobby with the uh, city and county government. And it sounded like that Metro lobby was mainly dealing with uh, student homelessness in, in Westwood and kind of housing. Yeah, it's sort of, it's really actually sort of funny. I, I uh, a couple days before this, just to get ready for our talk, I Googled Metro lobby to see if it still existed. I couldn't figure out if it still existed, but uh, really funny. Um, uh, there was a 2017 article in Daily Bruin on throwback on, uh, uh, yeah, throwback Thursday, I think is what they called it. Um, and there was an article uh, with me from the early 1980s uh, uh, talking about housing problems in, in Westwood Village. And so it's funny and, and parking. So so parking parking and housing were the big issues. Uh, phone service was also a big issue in the days before uh, landlines, in the days before cellular. Um, yeah, I'm thinking those problems haven't gone away. No, they haven't. I think just yesterday, USAC uh, wanted to create safe parking spaces for, for students to sleep in cars. Yeah, I'm not sure homelessness was a big issue for us, but certainly the, at least that I, that I was aware of, um, but certainly the um, the price of housing even way back then was 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 very high and 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 difficult for students to afford as they're going to school. Uh, so, Dr. Klein, you ended up matriculating directly into medical school after undergrad. Had you applied to a, a kind of combined program offered by UCLA? Yeah. Well, once again, way back then, those things didn't exist. Um, I think there were about five or six in the country um, that that existed at that time. I think there are probably a lot more now, and I I think I may have applied to a few of them, but. Um, uh, my SAT scores were, 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 were very good, but not genius. So I didn't get into those. So I had to struggle through undergrad and then apply to medical school like most of the rest of the world. And so tell us about your experience uh, at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. How did you end up selecting pediatric oncology as a specialty? It's sort of an interesting route, you know, route to how we get there. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of medical, medical student and, and Dr. Laura, how did you become the specialist you are? Um, and uh, so I, I really got interested in immunology as, as a first year medical student, uh, part of our classes. And one of the really interesting things is that um, HIV was, descri was, was described at UCLA back in the um, summer of 1981 um, by Mike Gottlieb. And uh, I wound up, I was actually wound up, and then in the uh, first trimester, first quarter of medical school, they put you in the clinic and they said, where do you want to go? And I went to the immunology clinic. So just, you know, three or four months after HIV had first been described, um, you know, back then uh, it wasn't called HIV. Um, it wasn't even called AIDS back then. I think it was called GRID, which stood for gay related immune deficiency, which, you know, back then in the early days, three or four months after it had first been described was really just an, in clusters of gay men um, in, I think, New York and Los Angeles. So I got interested in immunology. Um, and uh, from that sort of said, how do I apply immunology to what I want to do clinically? I didn't want to be an allergist. I wanted something more intense, more stressful because I'm a stress junkie. Um, and so I, I decided I wasn't going to do, I was going to do pediatric bone marrow transplantation. And then I sort of took a step back and said, okay, a slightly broader version of that is, is oncology. So I became a pediatric hematologist oncologist and did an extra year of training at UC San Francisco uh, in bone marrow transplantation as well, pediatric transplant. Well, um, you just mentioned you're a stress junkie, and I'm not going to let that pass. Um, 
do you do any kind of wild extracurricular activities then kind of where can we kind of see you outside of uh, a oh, setting? I mean, once COVID is over. Yeah. Um, so I uh, learned how to scuba dive at UCLA way back in 1980 in uh, the, sun, the sunset pool, uh, re retrieving my scuba gear from the deep end and, and putting it on, you know, while you're sitting there down, down the deep end of the pool. Uh, also like to scale, uh, sail and scuba dive. I'm sorry, sail um, and, uh, and ski, snow ski. So I like to do all of those things and it's just a matter of finding the time. So what was that experience at UCLA like getting your scuba license out at Sunset Rec and then where in LA were the uh, go-to spots? Um, well, you know, it, it was actually, I mean, so, you know, life lessons um, <clears throat> about, about uh, perseverance and, and persisting. And, you know, there were a class of us that, that did, that did uh, scuba training and it was, it was hard training. It wasn't easy. It wasn't always slow weekend, you know, um, vacation kind of scuba classes. <clears throat> and I remember there was a woman and she was probably four foot 10 and 90 pounds. Um, but she was going to go to the Marine Biology Center, uh, I think UCLA, USC Marine Biology Center in Catalina that following quarter. And so she had to make it through other than, you know, other she couldn't do the Marine Biology uh, quarter there. And I remember she was the grittiest person of all of us and she worked really hard and she made it through. Uh, and so at that's, you know, there's a life lesson there as well. Okay, so back to, back to your medical career. So mm -hmm. after your uh, residency in pediatrics at CHLA, a uh, biotech fellowship at NIH, and the fellowship in pediatric hemonc that you talked about at UCSF. You practiced for a few years kind of across the country <clears throat> in Las Vegas, Louisville, and Morristown, New Jersey. What were some of the important things that you learned early in your medical career that weren't necessarily taught in the classroom? Yeah, I think those are, those are interesting things. I think that... Um... I think sort of two things are almost opposite statements, but I'll, I'll share them both with you. Um, I, I think that we need to we need to learn humanity, um, and I think people have said that so often that it's 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 almost a cliche. But I think that uh, getting into medical school, getting through medical school, is such a such a difficult task. So much memorization, um, such hard work that uh, it's important to learn that, you know, especially in my world of pediatric oncology, you know, you're dealing with, with life-threatening illnesses. And, you know, for a parent, you're dealing with the worst thing that can ever happen to them uh, in their entire life, including the, their own cancer. Um, so you have, to, you have to learn humanity and, and, and gentleness and, and how you speak with people during, during difficult conversations. Uh, I think that's, that's one thing. Um, and then I think the second is almost the opposite, is as as medicine, and this is more recent phenomenon, as medicine has gotten more and more expensive, um, <clears throat> we realize how expensive it is for people to get, you know, life life saving treatment, and we need to be more cognizant of the cost of that care, and especially the cost of that care to, to people in terms of out of pocket expenses. Uh, you know, we have a turn. You know, doctors. You know, every every profession has its own language, its own slang, and. When you talk to doctors about the cost of medicine, we sort of say, yeah, the cost of medicine. And, and there's a new term that's been developed over the last couple of years called financial toxicity. And it's sort of funny because doctors are used to thinking about toxicity of medications and toxicity of surgery and toxicity of radiation therapy and all of these things. And when we started calling it financial toxicity, it seems like a bell went off and we, we understood it better. But, but medicine has gotten a lot more expensive and especially um, you know, something in my world in pediatric oncology 
It was pretty common that if you had two working parents um, and a sick child, that one parent had to stop working um, to try to manage that sick child. So all of a sudden, all of the all of the, the normal finances that a family depended on now there was the one less one less income coming in, and you know more out of pocket costs. And so just the the stress that that put on families and being sensitive to that, um, I, I think we just need to we as physicians need to appreciate the cost of, of care and be sensitive to what the term we call the value or high value care. So trying to provide high quality care to people at a lower cost. Great. So those those kind of two things that you talked about, treating patients with more humanity and the, the kind of financial component, are those things that you've noticed, uh, maybe some of your younger colleagues, younger clinicians that you worked with later on, got more of in medical school? Has you think, do you think medical school training has changed a little bit? Um, no, I don't. I Well, you know, I, I, I don't have that much contact with some folks who are just coming out of Although actually, I, I take that back. I do. Um, I, I think the nature of you know the nature of medical school, and I'm not trying to 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 criticize medical school training per se, but the nature is there's so much information to learn, um, and we learn you know we as science expands, we know more and more, and the body is so mysterious in some ways and can present in so many different diseases that it's just it's just a hard it's a hard course to get through um, to try to know all those things. You're dealing with a lot of smart people. Um, who can all learn very fast and work very hard, otherwise they wouldn't be there. And so I think sometimes some of those issues get pushed aside. And again, I think that's something that better doctors um, acquire, hopefully relatively quickly as they get past medical school and get past the, the you know, long hours of residency and say, all right, I'm dealing with, with, with you know, somebody here whose child has cancer. I need to, you know, I need to be gentle in how I speak with them. Sure, that, that makes sense. So in your career, you also spent almost 10 years at the Comprehensive Cancer Center of Nevada. How does that institution differ from an academic medical center? And did it end up changing the nature of your work? Yeah. Well, so, so CCCN, Comprehensive Cancer Centers of Nevada, is uh, it's just a large private practice. So it's a multi-specialty oncology group that had pediatric oncology, uh, radiation oncology, medical oncology, meaning adult oncology, and then uh, surgeons as well. So it's really a, a very large multi-specialty practice. Um, so, so it is very different than an academic medical center, which is which at the end of the day, academic medical centers need to make money too. And, and I think they do a good job of, of hiding that veneer of, of the necessity to make money. But I think that's an important part uh, of, of every institution because at the end of the day, you have to keep your doors open. Um, but yeah, so it was, we tried to provide good care to our patients and in pediatric oncology, especially, uh, there is the, the culture of the specialty is such that um, people are put on cooperative group studies, uh, much more so than adult oncology. So being part of large national and international studies was part of you know, how we took care of patients. And so you, you joined that practice as a shareholder. So did that kind of change your responsibilities at all? Or did it kind of open your eyes to a little bit more of the, the business side of, of healthcare? Mm -hmm. Um, well, yeah, so, so when you're in private, so unlike being in an academic medical center or being in a, ho a hospital employed physician, um, you have to pay attention to the finances because at the end of the day, if your expenses exceed your income, you don't take anything home. Uh, and there were certainly good times uh, in, 
you know, in that practice, and there are certainly bad times, uh, especially during 2010, 2011, during the Great Recession, when, you know, you have people come in with, with children come in with cancer and the families have no insurance, have no resources. And at the end of the day, we're not going to let, you know, the kids die on the streets of untreated cancer. So we have to figure out a way to take care of them. Um, we had a relatively small practice. So, I mean, pediatric oncology is by, by, by nature, you know, a very small specialty because thank God kids, you know, really don't get cancer that often. Um, so it was three doctors and a nurse practitioner, but it cost us $10,000 a day to keep our doors open. Um, so I was used to tell the folks who handled the money coming in, I said, yeah, there's a fair bit of money coming in, but there's money going out pretty darn fast as well. So yeah, I, th I think that um, you become more sensitive to the fact that uh, no matter who you are, you know, people have to make a living and they have to pay their expenses. And so, you know, when you pay for something, it's not just, it's not just uh, paying that person who's going to put it in their pocket and go away. A lot of times they have to keep their store open. They have to buy health insurance for their employees, have to pay their employees, have to buy insurance for their, for their structure. So all of those things So it did, yes, it did make me much more aware of how much things cost and how fast money can, can, can go out if, you know, if you're not careful. So up until that point in your life, um, I think it's about 2013, you're in uh, clinical work, kind of what was the key moment or, or that point of inflection uh, where you decided to work in health policy? Yeah, I mean, is it the right answer to say that a lot of life, a lot of things that occurred in life are accidents? Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I always was, I always was interested in, in public policy. And, you know, UCLA, I was an undergraduate student government when I was in medical school. Um, I worked, uh, I was the Graduate Student Association Legislative Director, and then just sort of kept that, kept that interest, stayed, in, you know, kept active in the American Academy of Pediatrics. And then when I was in, in Las Vegas, uh, I was the president of our county medical association, uh, the president of our state medical association. And then finally, uh, I was, I became uh, one of the inaugural members of the Health Insurance Exchange Board uh, in Nevada. So that was, you know, came, came into being with the ACA. And that got me you know, very involved in that. And then I applied to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellowship, which is a national fellowship. They pick about six people a year uh, uh, to, to go to DC and work in health policy. And I think because of my previous work, and I think especially because of my work on the Health Insurance Exchange Board, uh, you know, I was picked in that role and then came to DC uh, in 2013 and then, and then stayed. Um, so it was, it was, I think it always was, um, it was always was an interest of mine. Um, and just when I picked, when I got the fellowship, then I obviously had to uproot myself, leave my practice and go to DC and have, and have stayed. Tell us a little bit about the work you did with the office of Senator Ron Wyden and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Um, he was at that point chair of the Senate Finance Committee when the Democrats were in control of the um, of the of the Senate, uh, and I worked I worked in his personal office and we we worked on uh, some things on trying to fix Medicare. Uh, uh, way back then, they had what's called the Doc Fix, where they had set up this formula 1990s that required that they cut payments to physicians in Medicare by 20% a year, and of course that never occurred, and so people were trying to figure out a way to get around that without and still keeping it budget neutral. So I worked on that. Um, I actually wound up working back then on, on electronic cigarettes um, and they were first just coming out then in 2014 and a lot of questions about whether they were 
uh, you know, what their appropriate role was and appropriate regulation was. Uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things you find um, is that uh, there was advertising for tobacco uh, and then it was banned, I don't know, probably back in the 1990s or 1980s, I don't even remember when. And then when electronic cigarettes came out um, and there was no regulation, all of the things that tobacco had done in terms of advertising uh, came came back with electronic cigarettes. So so basically, you know, sex, sports, and rock and roll, um, and it came back in the exact same and it came back in the exact same way. And so there was this whole conversation about whether um, electronic cigarettes were a good thing, uh, in the sense that they probably are a good thing if they cause you to not smoke tobacco, and whether or whether they're a bad thing, um, because if you weren't going to smoke at all, then smoking electronic cigarettes is probably not the best thing for you to do because you're still taking a lot of nicotine into your body. So like most things in life, um, you know, the answer was nuanced and complicated. Uh, I didn't get into the fellowship. I, you know, I started, went into working in Senator Wyden's office. Um, the fellowship, the first three or four months, you basically sit in a group with six or seven of your colleagues. You get really close with them and I'm still friends with them. And you have about 120 speakers come and talk to you about health policy um, to, so that you can learn. And then after that, you then have what's called a placement. And I went first to um, uh, Senator Wyden's office and then to the Innovation Center at CMS. And I always think it's funny. I always laugh at myself um, because having been through um, being president of the County and State Medical Association, being on the Health Insurance Exchange Board, um, having actually served temporarily on the Medical Board in Nevada as well, I, I was pretty cocky and I said, you know, I don't really have too much to learn here about health policy. I mean, I, I've been doing this for four or five or six years in Nevada. I, I know I know most of it. And we got there and had about 120 speakers over four months. And I said, wow, there's so much I didn't know. And uh, and that continues to be the case now as I go forward and work. Um, you know, first, first I worked at CMS and working on, on developing models for oncology care and radiation oncology. And now in OPM, Office of Personnel Management and looking at insurance design for federal employees. And, you know, I think one of the neat things about my job, the reason I stay interested and keep doing what I'm doing, because I always feel like I'm learning something new. Um, and there's there's humility that comes with that. So it's, it's exciting to always feel like you're learning something new that there, you know, but there's also a humbleness that comes with, I'm tired of always being the you know, guy in the room that doesn't you know, know enough. Uh, and that happens when you go into any, anything new. So you have to sort of deal with that part of, of yourself. Um, talk about the fellowship. So I worked in Senator Wyden's office and I worked, went over to the Innovation Center and that is part of CMS. So CMS is the centers, plural, for Medicare and Medicaid services. And one of the centers was the Innovation Center which was created in 2010 by the ACA and the uh, alternatively known by people as Obamacare. Uh, and uh, you know, our job was to create models <clears throat> to test new values of care. And so I wound up being the clinical leader for the oncology care model, which is a model that's out there about 130, 140 practices in the country. Uh, maybe at this point, about 15% of all Medicare beneficiaries with cancer getting care under this. And it was designed to try to improve uh, care and, and emphasize high value care. And I always used to joke, I said, what do you do? You know, what do you do with a physician who has 20 years of oncology experience and one year of experience in public policy? And the answer is you put them in the oncology care model. Uh, and, and I had a great time there. I also worked in the radiation oncology model, which is another model that just came out a few months ago, trying to, uh, again, improve, improve care and improve the value of care in oncology. 
So I think one of the uh, more fascinating parts of your experience, at least from my perspective, was to be a CMS representative to former VP Joe Biden's Cancer Moonshot Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about what that initiative, uh, why it was important, why it was necessary at that point in time, and, and maybe some of the results? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people probably know that that Vice President Biden's son, Bo, died of, of, of brain cancer, um, <clears throat> glioblastoma multiforme, I presume. And uh, President Obama really wanted to bring there, there are a lot bring together resources to try to have a focused effort on, on, on oncology care. And there are a lot of things out there that haven't come together, sort of loose parts that are out there that need to improve. You know, one is data sharing. So I think the vice president talked about when he was trying to get care for his son, that he had to physically carry medical records from one, you know, large, you know, multiple files of medical records from one, um, from one clinic to the other, trying to find care for his son. That that probably shouldn't need to occur at this point. There's a lot of basic science out there that that the NIH has funded, that the U.S. taxpayers funded, that needs to be pushed more rapidly towards clinical relevance. Uh, I think that's important. And a lot of the ways we deliver care, when people talk about precision medicine or precision oncology, a lot of things that are just on the cusp of, of becoming relevant. And I think that the Moonshot Initiative was intended to try to push those things forward. Yeah, and, and a quick question for me and probably for the listeners, uh, what is clinical relevance? Like, is there a baseline um, or, or standard for that? Well, clinical relevance just means that that really cool you know, science paper you read um, you know, 10 years ago now can actually be, a, now can actually be used to help people, you know, fight cancer. So I would, you know, the, the great example I would give you um, is, wow, I think probably in the 1980s, early 1990s, people looked at um, what causes CML, which is chronic myelogenous leukemia, <clears throat> and determined it was a, 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 a genetic mutation, a fusion of two, of two different proteins called BCR and ABL, and that it created certain, um, a certain, um, protein, uh, mutant protein on the surface of those cells. And then as proof of principle, what happened is um, they created a drug we call Matinib or Gleevec. And that drug um, was designed by computer-aided design to basically through physical chemical properties bind to that mutant protein and, um, and, and put people into remission. And that's been one of the amazing success stories of, um, of CML. CML was a, was a disease where you either got a bone marrow transplant or you died typically within two or three years. And now it's, it's one that you take this medicine, Gleevec and some, some more modern um, uh, new drugs. And you basically take this pill um, for years or the rest of your life or something, you know, maybe, maybe not, and you're cured. Um, or disease is controlled is probably a better way to put that. And so that was sort of proof of principle. That said, hey, we can, under, we can look at the, basics, the basic biology of, of, of a leukemia we can figure out what's happening on the cell surface. We can design a drug um, <clears throat> to to uh, to bind that 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 protein, and we can make the cancer go away. And that happened. I think that was late 1990s. And what you've seen happen over 20 years is that we now understand the molecular biology of cancer. And although things are happening way too slow, especially if you have cancer or a loved one who has cancer, what's happening is we're now starting to develop medicines that. Not, that not just sort of kill every cell, which is what chemotherapy does, which is what radiation therapy does, but try to selectively, like a silver bullet, go in and understand the molecular biology of that cancer and specifically attack those, those mutant mechanisms. Wow. So it sounds like kind of a lot has changed in 
in terms of cancer treatment and, and therapy in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, it's uh, one of these amazing things. Um, you know, I did my fellowship at UC San Francisco in the early 1990s, 1991 to 1993. And I sometimes think back and I say, what was the survival rate I quoted to parents back then? Um, and what would I quote now? And just as an example, you know, for what we would call standard risk ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common cancer in children. Back then I was quoting 70 to 75% as a, as a cure rate, um, you know, up from 30 and 40% in the 1960s. And now we probably quote 85 to 90%. And uh, so I just sort of think back, you know, when I won't bore you with all the different diseases that, you know, I've gone through, but, you know, there's been this tremendous change. And, and one of the things I always tell folks, I would call, I call it my one floor elevator speech, um, is that 85% of kids with cancer are cured. And over the last 20, 30 years, we get about 1% better each year. Um, so over the course of a career and, you know, in a lifetime to watch that happen has been incredibly gratifying. And that's, you know, I would never, I, I love doing pediatric oncology. I, I tell people, I wish that I'd be put out of business, you know, lie on the beach, if there are no kids with cancer. Um, but it, it, given that that hasn't happened yet, it's been an amazing sort of journey, if you will, to see the progress we've made in taking care of kids with cancer from just, you know, the early 1990s to where we are now, almost 30 years. Um, but we've sort of, we're now talking about, you know, curing large numbers of kids with cancer. So you're now the uh, CMO and, and for my B-School buddies who are listening to this, uh, Chief Medical Officer, not marketing, of the yeah. US Personnel uh, Management. Is it a uh, political appointed role or is it apolitical? Yeah, it is. It is an apolitical role. I'm, I'm part of the civil service. Um, <clears throat> I'm what's called senior leadership at OPM, which is the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. And OPM is basically the HR function for the government. So we provide, we, we coordinate health insurance, we coordinate retirement services, um, employment policies, all those, you know, drug testing policies, all those things come out of OPM. Um, <clears throat> the health insurance benefit, um, we call the Federal Employee Health, health Benefit Program, FEHB started in 1961, so hell of a long time ago. And we currently provide coverage for 8.2 million federal employees, uh, retirees and their families. It's about $54 billion in annual premium just for your B-School buddies. Um, and uh, it's the largest employer-sponsored health insurance program uh, in the country. And so managing health insurance alone for more than 8 million federal employees seems like no small feat. Does the insurance of employees more closely resemble Medicare or do you have private payers like United, Blue Shield or Aetna? So it is a private program. So just to be clear, what we do is we contract with um, private entities to provide health insurance for uh, for our for our employees and the retirees. So what happens is um, <clears throat> every um, November, December, or so right about now, we have what's called open season, and you get a brochure from the from the government that says here are the you know 30 options that are available to you uh, in terms of the health insurance that you would pick, um, and then you have the choice of uh, you know there are different costs and different benefit structures, and you have the choice of which one you pick. Um, you know, I always tell people that, you know, I talk about the diversity of our, of our, you know, one of the interesting, difficult things in health policy, and one of the interesting things in health policy is that you have to make things work everywhere. So you have to make things work in Manhattan, and you have to make things work in Wyoming. And I, I love to tell folks, and, and you guys are too young, but um, we still, we still 
provide health insurance coverage for retirees in the Panama Canal zone of the United States, or what back then was the United States. So, so for those of you who are a little, um, you know, scant on your history, or in my case, I lived through it, right? We, 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 United States built the Panama Canal in the early 20th century. It became our territory. Uh, we gave it back to, we ran it. Uh, we gave it back to Panama, I think in 1999. I think Jimmy Carter did it in the 70s during his term and then gave it back to Panama in the 1990s, I think late 1990s. And so Office of Personnel Management still provides insurance for the, for the workers, the Panamanian workers who worked the US and are now retired. So when I talk about the diversity of what we do, you know, that as well as Guam, Puerto Rico, um, all those other places, um, we have to sort of provide good quality coverage for all those folks. So I, I did want to share in August 2019, the Kaiser Family Foundation came up with a study that said that the average cost of care for a family in <coughs> one year is $22,000, more than $22,000, saying that, you know, healthcare costs more than buying a standard car every year. So we're kind of curious, how has the, the federal government helped to work to maintain the cost of insurance premiums and keep them low for their own federal employees while medical care has kind of been rising in cost across the board? Yeah, I don't think we found the answer. I don't think anyone has <clears throat> found the answer uh, right now. Um, and the federal employee health benefit, about 70% of the cost of your health insurance is subsidized by, by the federal government, by your employer. But so, so the cost of insurance not only, not only affects the U.S. budget, but also the 30% aspect of it affects, um, you know, the part that the employees pay. Um, <clears throat> I think the focus, and, you know, you may have heard me say a couple times, high-value care. Um, I, I think we, we, we feel like there's a lot, like I think most health policy people feel like there's a lot of waste in the system, uh, unnecessary care, uh, administrative costs. Uh, there are a recent, I think is either JAMA or New England Journal article, I think it's JAMA, that talked about waste in the healthcare system, about 30% of total dollars. So I think what a lot of people are working on is trying to figure out how you maintain high quality care, but make it more efficient, make it more high value. You don't do unnecessary tests. Um, you don't, you don't, you, you, you need to use, you know, lower cost, but equally effective drugs to the extent that those are out there. So I think, I think the focus right now <clears throat> is not so much on rationing, which is what, you know, is a political buzzword that people talk about. But how you how you take um, how you take what you have the resources you have, and use them in better, more efficient ways. Makes sense. Let's go on to kind of a couple of general questions uh, that we had, um, kind of with COVID nineteen uh, consuming the news cycle uh, this entire year. How has that kind of affected public perception uh, for specific payment models in, in healthcare? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the Congress did the right thing um, in what we call the CARES Act, um, and it basically provided that uh, testing, treatment, vaccinations when they're when they're when they come out, um, hospitalizations are all provided uh, at at no cost and no copay to to people who are who are sick. So I think they definitely did the right thing uh, during during this time, and uh, <clears throat> I, I think we all, you know, like like everyone else, we're sort of struggling struggling through it. I've been. Um, you know, working from my house um, since since March of this year, and you know, I'm fortunate in that I, I can um, work from home. Um, there are other people who are not as fortunate. Uh, so I, I think I think it's obviously an enormous thing, and it's an enormous thing not only from from the the COVID standpoint, but from mental health issues, from people not getting necessary screenings, 
um, from people not getting necessary care. You know, are we, you know, we worry, are there going to be a, a bunch of cancers we're going to find out and heart disease that once people start going back to doctors that, you know, they've been having symptoms for months, but they were afraid to go to the doctor. I would say one of the interesting silver linings to this awful, awful thing that, that the whole world has been going through for, you know, almost a year now, 10 months, is the increased use of telehealth. So just, you know, just as we're talking right now on a Zoom call and we all have our standard Zoom meetings every day, uh, what you have telehealth was out there, um, which is basically the use of electronic technology, um, you know, phones, video cameras, Zoom meetings, uh, you know, Zoom technology um, to basically have physician patient interactions. And that was something that was trudging along was sort of slowly gaining increased acceptance, but was really happening sort of slowly. And what happened with COVID is all of a sudden there was this massive move towards telehealth. And the interesting thing is that people, um, patients like it better to some degree, um, physicians like it better to some degree, it obviously doesn't substitute for when you need to do a physical exam. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting is that in mental health and behavioral health, which is what you'd think would be so much, so dependent on, on, interper on body language and interpersonal interactions, that people actually, both doctors and patients, enjoy the, the, the behavioral health, mental health interactions better through telehealth as well um, and find that, that they're equally effective. In fact, some people have even said that's actually more effective because somehow people feel like they can open up more um, on, you know, on, a, on, a, on a telehealth visit than they can when they're sitting in your office. So I think, I think that's one of the positive things that's, that's come out of this. And one of the things we're working on is how to make sure that that you know, maintains its place, its appropriate place going forward once, you know, we open up our country again. And so in, in simple terms, what do you think are maybe two or three key things that you wish the general public understood a little bit better about either health insurance or, or population health? Wow. That's just, that's just, that's just a small little question. I don't, don't have to worry about that one at all. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think population health, which is just a way of, it's just sort of a fancy way of saying we all need to get healthy, want to exercise more, eat better, you know, get our immunizations, um, drive carefully, I mean, all those things. I think there's, I think what's happened is, I mean, it's sort of a natural um, pendulum swinging back and forth kind of thing. I think that probably for 100 years now, 120 years, um, medicine has gotten better and better and better. And we've we've, we're doing amazing things that you could never do before. Um, I always tell people that in the early 20th century, uh, tip, it was normal for a, for a family to lose one out of five children. So, 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 you know, one out 20% of your child, children would just die as a normal course of life. Um, polio, diphtheria, tetanus, uh, infectious diseases before they were antibiotics. So all of those things. So we made tremendous progress in medicine the last 100, 100 years, 120 years, however you want to define that. And I think what we found recently is that um, there are certain things that we can't fix uh, or are much more expensive to fix um, medically than if we try to fix them by, by in other ways. So getting healthy, exercising more, prevents heart disease, prevents diabetes. It's much better to, uh, to take care of of diabetes and cardiovascular disease by everybody exercising than doing bypass surgeries and, and expensive medicines and insulin pumps and all of those different things. So I think, I think that's one of the things we've learned. That thing sort of fits a little bit with population health is something we call social determinants of health. 
So that's a, a big topic, <clears throat> a big topic in medicine right now. And what we've also learned sort of along the same lines as well, we've done all these things in medicine, but now what, what else do we need to do? Is there are people's, people's, the way people live, how they live, where they live, um, what services they have access to affects their life tremendously. So we talk about food deserts where people don't have access to healthy food. Um, we talk about poor housing. So one of the things that people talk about is that, um, uh, is that you know, you could have a kid who is living in a rundown apartment that has bad carpeting or bad flooring. Um, and they're going, to, they're going to the ER every month for an, for an asthma attack that costs the system probably tens of thousands of dollars. And it might make more sense to, to replace the flooring. Um, now that's, that's difficult because it's a slippery slope. You know, so, you know, what do you do and what do you not do? There's also what's called the wrong pocket phenomenon, um, you know, where you have the Medicaid agency that provides medical care and you have the state housing agency that, you know, provides that, that provides flooring and housing. And, you know, the benefits, the, ben the cost to one, the, the cost accrues to one agency and the benefits to another. And so in a world of, of different agencies and things like that, you know, that becomes a problem. Um, but there's a really interesting thing, um, um, a book written by Elizabeth Bradley, and I've forgotten the name of it right now. But, you know, we all know that we spend, you know, more than any other country in the world on healthcare. And what Elizabeth Bradley did was to look at, at not only healthcare spending, but social service spending. And when you look at the two of them combined, the U.S. is about in the middle and our healthcare outcomes are about in the middle. Um, so it's not just we have, we're spending the most amount of money on healthcare and we're not, we're only getting middling results. It's well, social, social services and medical care spending is about the middle and that's where we are about the middle. And so just, I think there's sort of a, a broad, a, a broader view now of, of what healthcare is. And again, there's a lot of discussion there because y you know, you can't, you can't provide everybody free housing and you can't do all the things for everybody. It's a slippery slope, but I think there needs to be a broader view of, of healthcare and how we make people healthier. So I think that would be, you know, maybe one of the, one of the ways, one of the things to think about. No, I think that's uh, important. I think just looking at healthcare, not just as uh, an individual sector or a subset, but kind of looking at the, the broader picture. Uh, just an interesting fact, I was reading a, a research paper a couple of weeks ago where they found out that the benefits from exercise are actually underrated because people over uh, estimate the time they exercise. So when they go to the doctor, they say they do an hour or two hours, when in theory, they only did 15 minutes. Um, so the health benefits, when you kind of get the accurate data of the 15 minutes in their health mm -hmm. condition, uh, they found out that exercise is actually more beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. On a, on a related but different note, I spent, I spent two hours, I spent an hour on a stationary bicycle the other day. Um, and I realized that I burned the equivalent of two Oreo cookies worth of an hour's worth of bicycling, but burned two cookies worth of calories. So gives me a lot more appreciation for when I eat two cookies. Wow. Um, so kind of any advice to current future clinicians, anyone who wants to kind of enter health policy, uh, kind of <clears throat> what should they look forward to kind of what are the emerging fields in the next 10 years? Um, well, I mean, I think, well, so lots of different questions in that. So I think I would say that I, I still enjoy what I do. Um, I'm happy in the career that I've chosen. I have no regrets. You sometimes hear about doctors, you know, cranky doctors saying I wouldn't do this again. And I think that being a physician, you have a very, very rare opportunity to make a meaningful impact for people's lives. Um, you know, I'm still, you know, 
Facebook friends with some of my patients. Um, and uh, it's an amazing thing. I have one, one kid I took care of who, well, now he's a 30 year old man, but you know, I took care of when he was 16 or 17 years old and with leukemia. And now he's like a 30 year old man who's married with like three or four kids. Um, another one of my patients who I took care of just you know, passed her nursing board exam. Um, and it's an amazingly great feeling to know that and, you know, you've had this impact on people's lives. Every now and then I get this email or this you know, picture through you know, various electronic media of uh, one of my patients who I think I took care of when she was 15 or 16 years old and now she's 25. And you, know, you get this message from the mom that says, you saved her life, thank you for what you did. Um, and I think that's a rare privilege that not everybody gets. And so I, I think I think when you sort of when you take away the the BS of being pre-med and getting to medical school and getting through residency and, and dealing with the finances of medical care and insurance companies and all those things, it's still an amazing um, privilege to do what we do. I would say um, from a health policy. So I think in terms of future medicine, I think we pretty much know what's gonna happen in future medicine. It's more genetics, more molecular biology, um, more you know, everything, you know, what, what used to be in, in, in pediatric oncology in the early 1990s, um, we'd look at some cells and we'd use various different stains and look at them under a microscope to figure out what they are. Um, and there was one kind of one cancer um, or one type of brain tumor. Now we know that that one brain tumor is five different subtypes based on, you know, genetic mutation. So I think, I think it's pretty clear where medicine's going to go uh, in that sense. And hopefully we'll have tools that can more precisely target those genetic mutations uh, that cause disease. We'll have more powerful tools going forward. I think from a health policy standpoint, um, I think that uh, healthcare costs are the greatest single cause of bankruptcy for people in the United States. I think within healthcare costs, cancer is the greatest single cause of bankruptcy in the United States. Uh, and I think we need to figure out a way that we provide cutting edge care to people and either not bankrupt the country and not, not bankrupt them. Um, from a career standpoint, you know, I always tell, and I, I still practice pediatric oncology. So uh, before COVID, I was going out to Walter Reed and Johns Hopkins and working on Fridays, seeing patients. I just came back from a week in Kalispell, Montana, uh, providing coverage for a pediatric oncology clinic. So I, I still do, the, I still practice clinical medicine as much as I possibly can. And I always tell people who ask me, you know, young folks who are trying to get in health policy, I always say that keep your clinic, you know, your value is not because you're a better economist, you're better um, actuary, your, your value uh, in health policy is because you're knowledgeable clinical medicine. And that I always think that you are a better health policymaker and a more credible health policymaker if you're continuing to practice medicine. And I say more credible because I would tell you that when you're speaking to a group of physicians, if they think you haven't touched a patient in 20 years, they have no trust in you. If you get out there and somehow in the course of your talk to them, you sort of happen to bring up on site, oh yeah, spent spend a week in Kalispell, Montana, seeing oncology patients. Yeah, that EMR was sort of a pain in the butt, but yeah, I got through it. Um, there's a trust there. Um, you know, you're, you're one of them. They, they know you understand medicine. They know you understand taking care of patients. They know you understand electronic medical records, insurance companies, all those different things, and they have more trust in you. So I think it's really, really important for anybody who's doing, for any physician or clinical person, nurse, dietitian, nutritionist, anybody, physical therapist, who's going to help policy to maintain your clinical skills because you'll be better and more credible if you do. Awesome. I think that kind of, that's great advice to, to current clinicians and those aspiring to be clinicians. 
And so our uh, last two questions that we like to ask, what is your favorite UCLA memory and who is your favorite Bruin? Okay, well, I'll, so my, my, my favorite UCLA memory, so, um, so freshman chemistry was, was, was eight o'clock every morning um, in the oh. South Campus in the chemistry building. Um, and so we all got up early to go to that. I was, science classes always started at eight o'clock, so I could never be one of those Bruins that got to you know, party late and sleep late. I always had to get up eight o'clock in the morning for a class. But after, after our eight o'clock freshman chemistry class, we all just played, we all played Frisbee going across the quad between the chemistry building and the engineering building back and forth and back and forth. And uh, I remember that as a, as a particularly good moment, a uh, lot, lot of fun in doing that. Uh, I remember spending a lot of time in student government. I think, you know, Kirkhoff Hall, if I remember correctly, room 306, um, spent a lot of time there in Metro Lobby and that was a big part of my life and uh, worked with a lot of uh, good people and enjoyed that time. And favorite uh, UCLA Bruin? God, I knew you were going to ask me that question. <clears throat> so I worked really hard not to give you a nerdy answer. Um, and no, I'm we, gonna give we you... like nerdy answers. Nerdy okay. answers are great. So All right, well, I'm going to give you a nerdy answer. So it'd be really easy to pick some athlete that we all know, you know, who set all kinds of scoring records and say, oh, yeah, they're my role model. Um, but that wouldn't be true. So I'm going to change the, change the question a little bit and say, you know, which of your, you know, which UCLA Bruin do you think about the most often? <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you Dr. Friedhoff Schostrand. And you're probably going to, your eyebrows are going to go up and you're going to say, who the hell was this guy, Dr. Schostrand? And he was born in 1912. And I think just, I just looked him up. He died in 2011, so he lived to be 98 years old. And he was one of the pioneers of uh, electron microscopy. Uh, and you know, I think if I remember the story right, he got sick in a hospital in the 1930s and started reading about electron microscopy and became one of the first people to do that. But why is he one of, why is he one of my favorite Bruins? Um, not, you know, and he was in a contender for the Nobel Prize. I remember one, one lecture he gave us in an upper division biology class where he ranted about how, you know, his competitor got the Nobel Prize, George Pilati, when he really should have gotten the Nobel Prize. So I remember that. Um, but the reason I remember him is on the last day of class, right before finals, you know, after he's sort of telling us what to study for, for our final, he gave us this sort of speech that said, trust your feelings. He said, your feelings are your body's way, your, your mind's way of taking all the information you have and, and putting it into a, and, 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 give it, and giving you the best answer possible. You know, and I guess a less eloquent way to say that would be trust your gut. Um, but he said it in a, in a beautiful way. And I found it's been, you know, it's been 39 years since I graduated UCLA, but I find th that a lot of times as I go back and um, go through life, I think back to those, to those words and say, okay, you're, this is what you're thinking. And it's not just a, you know, nothing thought, it's your brain, it's your body, it's your emotions, it's all of those things coming together to tell you how you should make this decision. So I always think of, think of those words on the last day of the upper division ultrastructural biology class. And that's probably, that's probably the thing I think about, probably the UCLA um, professor I remember most for that particular reason. Wow. Which by good. the way, which, which I would say, by the way, if you, if you spend your entire quarter studying ultrastructural biology and the shadows cost, shadows that are created by electron beams, you know, and then the very, very last, you know, 15 minutes of the, of the quarter, the, this, this person says, trust your gut. Uh, you know, that, that was a pretty, pretty significant impact. Um. Yeah, that's pretty compelling advice too. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Ron, on Bruin One Ear and Not the Other. 
Uh, before we feel free or before we let you go, feel free to give us a 30 second plug uh, for something going on in your life. Well, I think, you know, sailing um, is, a, is a big part of my life or I want it to be more a part of my life. And I just think it's a beautiful uh, thing to do. It's something I did learn at UCLA along with scuba diving, uh, you know, on, in Marina del Rey, uh, UCLA had some boats there. And I think it's a great play, great way to be outside. Uh, it's it's uh, a quiet, peaceful place. And I think the fun thing for those of you who people need to constantly be thinking is thinking about the physics of sailing uh, and the wind direction and how you set your sails uh, while you're having a great time and, and enjoying the outdoors. You're also thinking a little bit about stuff. And so it's one of those things I really enjoy doing. Awesome. Thanks again, Ron. Thanks again to Dr. Ron Klein for joining us on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or guest recommendations at Bruin, the number one, ear at gmail.com. And please make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed learning more about awesome Bruins. And like always, hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go Bruin one ear and out the other.